Well, good morning to each of you. I want to say thank you for joining us uh, this morning. I want to invite you now, grab your uh, Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Uh, also just want to encourage you and, and let you know, I hope we'll, you'll join us again next Sunday as we will uh, launch into a new series uh, entitled Rooted In and Built Up. By God, it's going to lead us right into Easter. Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about a very specific uh, topic. 36 years ago, President Ronald Reagan made a presidential proclamation. The proclamation was uh, written and signed on January 13th, 1984. In part, this proclamation said that every January 22nd was going to be national uh, Sanctity of Life Day. Of course, January 22nd is the anniversary date of the Supreme Court's decision of Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion within the United States. Uh, the numbers ha- are encouraging over the last few years in that uh, the number of abortions being performed has decreased Uh, Somewhat, and we praise God for that, Uh, but we also mourn the fact that since 1973, approximately 60 million abortions have taken place. And while the sanctity of life is absolutely tied to the issue of abortion, it is bigger than just one issue. In fact, the one big thing this morning is this, that Christians must stand and fight for the sanctity of all lives. And so let's look at it together. Starting in Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 16 and ask if you can and would stand as we honor the reading of God's word. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem. And in all coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not." Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come into worship. And Lord God, I pray that uh, we would take the emotion out of this uh, charged issue, that it would not be about uh, emotions or politics, but that we would concentrate on what the Word of God says. And to this end, Father, we pray that your Spirit uh, would just speak. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Again, Christians must stand and fight for the sanctity of all lives. As we begin to unpack this issue on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I want to begin by doing uh, so of laying out why believers should be pro-life. The first one is this, that we are made in the image 
of God. Now this goes back to uh, what we were talking about this morning uh, in our scripture reading and opening. Genesis one twenty seven says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so in this verse, we see that it is God who is the creator of all mankind. If you go into Genesis 2, you'll see that it uses a different word. It says that he formed mankind. And this uh, conveys the idea of an intimate involvement. It is the, the picture of a potter uh, working and molding the clay here. And because mankind is made in the image of God, every life must be seen as sacred and valuable. If we go a little bit further in Genesis, we see in Genesis 9 that God says the penalty for killing someone is that your life is going to be taken from you. Now that's a steep price to pay for this crime, but why does God assign that punishment? He answers it in part in Genesis 9:6. He says, for in the image of God, he made man. And so to willingly take somebody's life is to rebel against the creator. It is to devalue what he has specifically and intimately created. So being made in the image of God makes everyone sacred, valuable, and worth protecting. The second reason I believe that every believer ought to be pro-life is this, because of the gospel. In John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world, the cosmos, This isn't just one particular part of the world. This is all mankind in all of the world. For God so loved us all, is the way that we could put it, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we see this is a universal love giving a universal invitation to come and to be redeemed by Christ. And this is the heart of the gospel, that the king of kings left his glory and his throne in heaven to come to his creation for the specific purpose of being a substitute and dying on the cross on behalf of all mankind. And so the gospel is a reason that we should be pro-life because in the cross we see who God loves and who God is desiring to be saved. And so understanding this, we need to now dive into the text a little bit and ask the question, well, what are some truths about abortion, about neglect, about forgetfulness of various groups in life? The first truth is this, it isn't new. If you were to go uh, into our text, and even we can go back into the Old Testament, what we can see here is the systematic murder of children is as old as the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was growing in population while they were in slavery in Egypt. And Pharaoh became concerned that they would become so numerous that they would side with an enemy and try to overthrow them. And so Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives that as a Hebrew boy was being born, they were to kill them. Now we fast forward into our text here in Matthew 2. We see a different 
uh, ruler, this being a Roman king by the name of Herod. And he is concerned, and so he is going to order the systematic killing of those that he sees as a threat. So this isn't anything new. What we're seeing from Planned Parenthood, what we're seeing in the other uh, governments and legislators writing these abortion laws, isn't anything new. And it's because it's politically motivated. Now, how do we know that Herod's plan here in Matthew 2 is politically motivated? All we have to do is go back to the beginning of the chapter. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2 would say this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And so these, these wise men, these magi, these astrologers, they are identifying Jesus as a king to king. And so Herod sees this baby, or, or this by the time uh, here, two years old, as a direct threat to his throne. And therefore, Herod says, determines he has no other option but to eliminate this threat. And if he's not sure who the threat is, then anybody in and around that age is a threat. But what about today? Even though it's rarely framed this way, the issue of abortion in the United States is politically motivated. I would give you two proofs of this. The first one is the litmus test that is given to potential politicians and to potential justices. They're always asked, what's your opinion of Roe v. Wade? What's your opinion on abortion? One of the uh, biggest differences between our two political parties is on this issue of the sanctity of life. We can further see that it is politically motivated in our country because it is an attempt by our government to control every aspect of its citizens' lives from the womb to the tomb. The government is trying to set itself up as the moral authority for the people. And this has to be rejected, church. Because while God did ordain the government, we see it in Romans 13. While God did ordain the government, he did not give the government the right to usurp or to reject his biblical commands. And taking the life of a child, neglecting a senior citizen, forgetting our first responders and military, this is rejecting clear biblical commands. And therefore, we have to reject this line of thinking, this line of governing. Let us remember a quote that is often attributed to President Gerald Ford, though not exactly sure if it was his. But it says this, a government that is big enough to give you everything is big enough to take everything from you. The third truth about the sanctity of life uh, argument is this, it is bigger than just abortion. See, the sanctity of life is about each person's right to life as granted to him or her by God. When a nation or a society doesn't value one group of its citizens, then it doesn't value any of its citizens. 
If innocent children are not valued, then it will not be long until senior citizens are not valued. And if we do not protect and provide for our children, then soon enough we will stop protecting and providing those who have given their life in service of protecting us as a nation. And so if you want to ask the question of is the sanctity of life really an issue, I would simply ask you this. Is the neglect and murder of children, the neglect of our seniors, and the neglect of our first responders and military, are they three realities in our nation? And the overwhelming answer is yes. But this begs the question. How a church that was founded upon Judeo-Christian values, how the clear influence of the Bible is seen throughout our founding documents and in many of the laws, even on the books today. Why is this happening? I believe we can answer it a couple of ways. The first one would be this, that we no longer value human life. Now at the risk of sounding like the old guy in the room, I believe that we need to take a hard look at the movies we watch, the television shows we watch, and the video games that we allow our children to play. We need to look at them because they have become increasingly more violent. And what happens over time, it's, it's like the brain of an addict. They start off with something little, and for a while it works. But over time, that little bit doesn't escalate more and more and more. Why? Because it is rewiring our brains. And so what we are seeing is all of these explosions, all of this killing, all of these things happening, whether video games are on a television or movie screen, and it's rewiring our brains to where we don't take human life important anymore. Because after all, the person that we saw on the movie screen get blown up or get shot, they actually didn't die. That that was CGI. That that was uh, incredible graphics that Hollywood did. They didn't really die. Or on this video game, if you lost, well, you didn't really die. All you got to do is restart the, the game. We're being taught that human life is expendable. That it's not really that big. It's not that important. Yet the creator himself values human life so much that he said, if you murder, intentionally murder someone, then your life will be taken from you. I think we we have to understand and we have to become concerned that when we can watch this blatant violence, this disregard for human life, and we don't even bat an eyelash at it. Do we really value human life? Do we hold it in as high regard and esteem as God, the one who created and gave us life? Do we value it the same way that he does? I think the other reason that this is happening more and more is the fact that we worship at the altar of politics and power. I've watched over the last decade a nation that I love lose its bearing morally and spiritually. 
I've watched many Christians sacrifice the gospel and their testimony in the political arena, especially on social media. We have allowed political parties and politicians to determine who is valuable and who isn't. And instead of being salt and light as Jesus has called us to be, we have stood back and remained silent. Or we've vilified groups or we've written them off because they're not like us or they're not here, uh, from here. And so somehow we have relegated them to a second class status. Now why do we do that? Go back to the previous one. We no longer value human life. We make value judgments on who is worth it and who isn't. In an effort to stay in favor with a political party, the church has forgotten the second greatest commandment by Jesus, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. The book of James, James chapter 2, we would read uh, that if the love of God dwells in us, then we're not going to show favoritism. We're not going to make value judgments. We're not going to say that your life is worth protecting and yours isn't. We will love those whom God loves and we will desire that all men, all of mankind comes under the conviction of the Spirit so that they can surrender to the gospel. We will learn to see that people are valued and they are a special creation by God of whom he died for. As Christians, we have to remember that our first loyalty is to King Jesus. And our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And with that in mind, we have to ask this important question. What can we do? In 2020, with everything going on, what can we as a church, what can you as individual Christians, what can we do? I would say the first thing that we must do is we must confess and repent of our sin. The Bible is clear that without confession and repentance, there is no forgiveness. We can no longer bury our head in the sand. We can no longer pretend that it's not happening. I'm not talking about denying that abortions happen. The church has talked about this quite a bit. I'm talking about our attitudes towards other people. I'm talking about how we deal with those who are within our church that have had an abortion or encouraged a woman to have an abortion if they are here. And by the way, studies would say they probably are. We have to confess that we have sinned in our attitudes, our words, and our actions. We've got to own it. And then we've got to turn from it. We have got to repudiate all forms of hatred, bigotry, and racism. The second thing that we have to do is we must pray. We must pray for our nation and for our, our, all of our elected officials. Whether we agree with them or not, whether we voted for them or not, Paul wrote to Timothy that this is a command, that we make prayer intercession for all kings, all elected officials. We have to pray for our elected officials. We must also pray for the church that it will not lose sight of her calling as kingdom citizens to share the gospel with the lost. We have to pray that we will not trade our influence for power. We must pray for the women who have had an abortion. 
for the men who have encouraged a woman to have an abortion. Again, the statistics tell us it is a high probability that even within this body right now, there's a woman who has had an abortion. There's a guy who has encouraged a woman to have an abortion. Or you know somebody who is affected by it, who has been in that position. You may not know that specifically about them because they've been suffering in silence and shame. Chances are they're here. We have to pray that they will hear the hope of the gospel, that they will no longer live and listen to the lies of Satan, that they have outsinned the grace of God, but rather that they would look and behold the beautiful, glorious face of Jesus Christ and in him and his death on the cross see that there is hope and forgiveness and redemption available to them. We must Pray for them. And then we must participate. We begin with prayer in order to be in God's will. But we cannot end in prayer. We must become participants in the change that America needs to see. We have the privilege with our government to petition them and to peacefully protest against them when they're acting unjustly and unbiblically. And when a politician says that you can kill a child even after they have been born, it's unbiblical and unjust. When a senior citizen has been denied the medical care that they need because they're seen as a drain on the system, it is unjust and it is unbiblical. And when our men and women who have gone and fought overseas to protect us and to keep us safe, when they return home, they should not come to an ungrateful nation. They should not come to a place where they cannot get basic medical care, a place to live, and a job to provide for their family. This is unjust and it is unbiblical and the church has to step up. We have to support Christ-centered crisis pregnancy centers like the Blue Ridge Women's Center there in Roanoke. You can volunteer there. You can give clothes there. We're most likely going to, again, uh, participate as a church in the Walk for Life. We will most likely, again, do a baby bottle campaign. And let me just take a quick moment to tell you about the baby bottles and the Walk for Life. I want you to imagine a young and she finds herself pregnant now what she did was wrong any sex outside of marriage scripture would speak against but no matter the amount of telling her that is going to change the fact that she now finds herself pregnant and so she goes and tells The little boy, he's not a man, he's a boy. She goes and tells that boy what he has done, and he denies being a part of it, and he leaves. And this girl can't go tell her mom and dad because she's afraid of how they're going to react. And she doesn't feel like she can tell her youth pastor or her pastor Because she knows that premarital sex is wrong and she knows abortion 
is wrong, but she doesn't know what to do. She feels like her life is over. And so she's scared and she feels alone. She doesn't know what to do. She has, by the sovereignty of God, to wander into the Blue Ridge Women's Center one day where she encounters something she wasn't expecting. She was expecting judgment and shame. But rather she was greeted with grace and mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. She doesn't know that this is a place that doesn't perform abortions, nor will they give you information about them. She's just scared and alone and turning to anyone who could possibly help her. And then one of the volunteers says, I want you to come back here with me. And they go to a room in which she's given an ultrasound. And for the first time in seven or eight weeks, the past couple weeks since she's known, for the first time, her fear is replaced by something else. It's replaced by awe. Because on the screen, off to her side, she can see a heartbeat. And she can hear that heartbeat. And it's separate from hers. She's come to now realize there's a living child inside of her. scared. She's still not sure what to do. She's now face to face with the reality that there's a living being who has been created by God inside of her. And though she doesn't know what to do, she's told by those women at Blue Ridge Women's Center, it's okay, we're going to help you through this. That's why the walk for life, that's why the baby bottles are so important. Because they help do things like that and things. Because it's proven that when a woman who is on a fence about should she keep a child or abort a child, when they see the, the sonogram, they hear the heartbeat. Over seven out of ten women change their minds. We've got to be a part of this. Got to be on the side of adoption. A church and Christian cannot rail against the sin of abortion while committing its own sin of passivity. You cannot look at a woman and go, you shouldn't have had sex. You shouldn't have killed your child. Well, you, and then they look at you and go, well, will you help me? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't help. You can't do that. We have got to be on the front line, not only of ending the murder, abortion of Planned Parenthood, but we got to be on the front lines of adoption. we got to help the military. There are tremendous organizations that help soldiers coming back who have been wounded. One of the best known ones is the Wounded Warrior Project. But I want to share uh, one with you that is gospel-centered, Christ-centered, that is focused on active military. It's called the Praetorian Project. We've talked about it uh, a little bit in times past here. But this is a ministry that has two 
purposes. They want to get Bibles in the hands of every person on every military installation in the world. The second thing is they want to plant a church near every military installation in the world. They've got some in D.C. They've got one in Florida. They've got one in California. They've got one uh, down in North Carolina near Fort Bragg. Uh, They have one in Okinawa, Japan. They're planting churches around these military installations. This is something we should pray for. This is something we ought to be involved in. What about our seniors? You know, oftentimes they get thrown into a senior living facility. That's the nice term we have attached. And they're just thrown there and they're forgotten. You know, we can go to Runkin' Pratt's five minutes up the road. We can go to Rocky Mount to Franklin Health and Rehab or Rocky Mount Health and Rehab. We can spend 10, 15 minutes just telling these men and these women, you matter to God, that you are not alone. You have not been forgotten. We can do that. We can volunteer uh, to, to do Meals on Wheels. You want to be a part of a gospel-centered ministry? You want to join the church where we're already involved in a uh, gospel-centered ministry? It's the Agape Center. The Agape Center is a place that, yes, they provide food. Yes, they provide clothing. Yes, they do appliances and they do firewood. But they do something even greater. With every client that comes in, they get to hear the gospel. They get to be asked the question, hey, do you have a church that you belong to? Hey, if not, all right, this is where you live. Here's the closest church that partners with us. Why don't you go check them out? Reach out to them. This is happening not just for Bedford County, but not just Pennsylvania, but Franklin County as well. These are opportunities for you and I to become involved, to make a Christ-centered gospel difference in the community that God has called us to and planted us in. As Edward Hale said, quote, I am but one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. I will not let what I cannot do keep me from doing what I can do. We must participate. And lastly, we must give grace. The biblical standard for giving grace is that we are to give the same amount of grace to others that God has given to us. In church, this is where we have a lousy track record. We have to be crystal clear on the issues. Abortion is murder and it is sinful. Mistreating or neglecting a citizen or non-citizen is sinful. Forgetting those who have proudly, courageously served us is sinful. However, the sin of abortion is not worse than gossip, backbiting, bitterness, anger, hatred, division, and even overeating. You see, a sin is a sin. James 2 says that if you've broken one of the commandments, you've broken them all. The punishment from God for every sin is the same. And here's the good news. Thankfully, so is the solution. The solution 
is to surrender your heart and your life. Believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place, shedding his blood for every sin of every person of all time. And in his blood, there is the possibility of forgiveness. And in his name, there is redemption. If you confess and turn from your sin, there is forgiveness for you. You have not outsinned the grace of God. Romans 5.20 says that where sin did abound, grace did abound much more. So if you are here this morning and you have been suffering in silence, you have committed what the world has told you is an unspeakable tragedy. Jesus says, come to me. Lay down your shame. Lay down your sin. And receive the grace of God. And forgiveness and redemption. Don't carry this weight any longer. Don't suffer in silence one more second. Because what you are longing for, what you are looking for is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. And that grace is sufficient for everybody. Would you stand with me as we're going to pray?